take your copy of God's Word and turn with me one last time to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Today, beginning our reading in verse 12 and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 28. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 today through 28. And the very first thing that you will notice as we read this passage is that, wow, there's a lot there. Uh, the verses aren't very long. Some of them are very short, but that means that it comes in rapid succession, and there are a lot of different ideas, it seems, at first crammed together. There are 19 direct commands or warnings in this passage. Uh, because I am neither willing nor probably able to preach a 19-point sermon, that means that we are not going to touch on everything in fact, I'll tell you at the beginning, I'm not even going to attempt to deal with the last four verses. Uh, these are Paul's concluding remarks. Brothers, pray for us. That's important. Have this read to the others. The grace of the Lord be with you. Uh, we could take time and look at that today. We are not going to. And we probably will not cover some other verses that you think are very important. In fact, I bet everybody will find something that they want to know in this text that we will not talk about. And I'm sorry for that, but we're going to cover this today. We're, uh, with God's help, going to be done. Uh, we're going to finish with 1 Thessalonians. Lord willing, in January, we're going to come back to 2 Thessalonians after we have a bit of an Advent break, and we will continue the story in a sense. But today, we are going to be wrapping up 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And before we read these words together, please uh, join me again in a word of prayer. Well, gracious Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that it has been read in our hearing and is being read and studied in our hearing. We thank you for the grace of God that we find here, and we pray that you would help us to grow in it more and more. Oh, gracious Lord, encourage us, we pray, with your word, with the message of your faithfulness. Give us confidence in you and the work that you're doing in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. 
Well, if you, uh, if you live in New York City, and in New York City you want something that you don't want to have to wait for, a man by the name of Robert Samuel can take care of that for you. Uh, Robert Samuel is the founder of a company that he calls SOLD. It's an acronym that stands for Same Old Line Dudes. Uh, it's a company that offers a line-sitting service for people who are too busy to spend their time waiting for things that they want to buy. So if you want the iPhone 18 Max Plus Pro on the day that it comes out, he can sit and wait for it for you. If you want some brand new fancy luxury limited edition watch, Samuel and his cohorts will stand or they will sit or they will sleep out in line in tents just to get you the thing that you are looking for. And uh, Samuel has waited in line for all kinds of stuff. Hoodies, video games, and lots of luxury electronics. But at the start of the pandemic, he charged busy New Yorkers to hold a spot for them in line to get vaccinated. By far, his specialty, his, uh, his line service, deals mostly with getting tickets for Broadway musicals. When Lin-Manuel Miranda announced that he was leaving his show Hamilton, Samuel charged clients $1,000 a day to wait in line to buy the maximum allowed two tickets. Some people he charged $5,000 for a whole week long of waiting just to get those two tickets. If anything, I, I think it reveals how much most of us hate waiting. Waiting is not the kind of thing that we like to do. Waiting for most of us feels passive. Waiting feels unproductive. In fact, probably many of the people that Samuel waits for are the kind of people who have more money than they have time or sense. They can't take five days to wait for these tickets, but they can surely pay for them because waiting would be unproductive. Waiting is what we're forced to do when there's nothing else we can do, so we devise all sorts of clever ways to make waiting less laborious. Everything from handing your child an iPad in the doctor's office to hiring Samuel to wait in line for your tickets. In our Christian lives, there's no getting around the waiting that God's people are called to do. We're waiting for a particular day. You notice that in the last several passages that we've read in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's been reminding the church of what they are looking forward to. A particular day of judgment and redemption, the day of the Lord that he says will come like a thief in the night when the Lord will descend with a cry of command. Christ is coming back for salvation and judgment. And until he does, we look forward. We wait. We wait and hope for that day. You remember, of course, that several times in our studies we have turned back to that statement in chapter 1 that describes the church of God fundamentally as a waiting people. Chapter 1, verse 9, Paul talked about how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. The church is a waiting people. This is what we do. This is what we are called to. This is what God has destined us for, to wait for that day. Now, if you're reading our passage today closely, I hope you are, you'll notice that the language of waiting doesn't show up here. But the idea is there. The concept is tucked away in all of these final instructions that Paul is giving to the church for what life ought to look like until Christ returns. 
you're leaving the house and your children are young, you have your routines, right? I'll be back later, you say. You kiss them on the forehead. Here's what you need to remember. This is what you have to do. You find the oldest one. You say, be a big help in the house today. You give them instructions and you, you have them being busy until you return. That's what Paul is doing. It's a kiss on the forehead for the Thessalonian church, telling them this is what you ought to be about while you wait for the Lord to return. This is how we ought to live and wait for the Lord. Now, in order to pull together everything that the Holy Spirit is saying in these verses, true to form, I want you to focus on three things today. Uh, three attitudes, we might call them, of a healthy waiting church. What do we do? How should we approach this waiting let me suggest that the church that waits well will be a church that is full of peace, will be a church that is full of joy, will be a church that is full of confidence, peace and joy and confidence. Now, peace is our first point here, and in particular, the apostle wants us to wait with peace in our relationships. Notice the key language that comes at the end of verse 13. Paul says that you ought to be at peace among yourselves. Not peace within yourselves. This isn't an, an internal peace. This is an interpersonal peace. This is peace from one person to another, the lack of conflict between two parties. And so he repeats, he mirrors that, uh, that command in verse 15. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do good, he says. Be at peace, he tells us. Paul is urging the church to wait for Christ with the grace of peace permeating our relationships together. And that sounds like a beautiful idea, doesn't it? It sounds like the kind of utopia we probably wish the church actually was. The kind of place where all of God's people are uh, easy to get along with where we're not easily offended, where we never hold grudges, where we're quick to forgive, where we're gracious and we're kind, when we get along together all the time. Doesn't it sound like that's what the church ought to be like? But if you're also the kind of Christian that has ever spent more than five minutes with another Christian, you know that this doesn't happen automatically. Peace in our relationships is the kind of thing that has to be cultivated. It's the kind of thing that often has to be guarded and protected. So alongside that call to peace, you notice also this language of admonition. It shows up first in verse 12. He says, there are some in the church who labor among you, and they're over you in the Lord, and they admonish you. Now, just like waiting, admonition is another unpopular concept. The kind of thing that very few people like to do for someone else, and almost no one likes to receive from someone else. An admonition is a rebuke. I have some British friends that would probably call it telling someone off, but not in the American way of using that phrase. One scholar, in a very scholarly way, you know how we can, uh, we can tend to obfuscate things sometimes. One scholar says, the word implies exerting a corrective influence upon a person who is not normally predisposed to accept the instruction. I like that. An admonition is good advice to somebody who probably doesn't want it. And in the church, it means giving counsel that is biblical 
because you love your neighbor enough, excuse me, because you love your neighbor enough not to let them continue in the dangers of their sin. And Paul says there are people in the church whose job it is to do just that. We have a special word for people like this. We call them shepherds. We call them pastors, and we call them elders. Men in the church who have the God-appointed responsibility of leading God's people in truth and gospel living. Men with authority in the local congregation to speak into your life, to instruct you in ways that you might not be predisposed to accept. Sometimes that's where peaceful relationships come from. You know, sometimes... Uh, in order to let go of our grudges, we need someone to rebuke us for holding those grudges in the first place. Sometimes, in order to move into genuine forgiveness for someone else, we need someone to come alongside of us and gently, or, or maybe sometimes not so gently, remind us of how God in Christ has already forgiven us. Sometimes our hearts need to be softened toward one another, toward other believers, through the painful work of admonition. And for that reason, the Lord has given his church leaders and shepherds, pastors and elders. Now there's a pushback here that you might be aware of, and the pushback is that we don't have to look very far at all in the church, hopefully not in this church, but it's possible we don't have to look very far in the church for examples of mishandled authority. And it's true. Sometimes sinful church leaders misapply God's words. Sometimes they abuse their positions. Sometimes they make victims of the congregants in a church. And we ought to be grieved when we see that happening, whether it's close to home or somewhere else in the media that we see happening uh, in, in churches that claim to be followers of Christ. But the answer for authority gone wrong in the church is not to reject all authority entirely. Rather, it is to respect those who labor well. That's what Paul says. Those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ rather than their egos, Paul says, to esteem such men very highly in love for their work. And that presupposes that there are men who are actually doing good work in the church. Gospel work in the church. Real work helping to nurture and to strengthen the church. And by the grace of God, Redeemer Church has men like that. All of your shepherds, your ruling elders, all six of them. Chris and Mike and, and Steve and Landon and Rob and Scott. You know these men, and I know these men, and I see some of the work that they do for the church that you might not see. I know the way that they labor for your souls in prayer. I know the way that they give up time to go to meetings and to make phone calls and to visit people who are hurting in the church or struggling with things in the church. The Lord has given us a blessing in these men who work hard for the church. And yes, sometimes they might even have to take you aside and admonish you, but that is what the Lord has called them to. And if they have to do that work, let me tell you, let me rest, make you assured that they are not pursuing their own self-importance. They are, when they do that, simply modeling the way that the church grows in peace together. So you notice that the language of admonition shows up again in verse 14. It shows up this time alongside three other commands. 
So along with admonishing the idle, we also are told to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. There is a multifaceted approach that needs to happen in the church. And actually, sometimes this is the difference between authority that's handled well and authority that's not handled well in the church. When authority is not handled well in the church, every person is a problem to be corrected. Everything you're going through just needs to be, uh, to be brought together and you just need to get in line. You need to go along with the program that's happening because you're standing in the way of what the church is trying to do. Not so, says Paul. Sometimes we need patience. Sometimes we need admonition. Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need encouragement. We need to look at one another and understand that we all come from different places and we all have different struggles and stories. And so we can be kind and gracious toward one another in a way that's not just some sort of monochromatic approach that paints everybody with the same brush and says, get along already. And the wise Christian leader cultivates the discernment to know the difference between those things. But what should stand out about verse 14 is the fact fact that Paul is not addressing the leaders in the church. In verse 14, you notice that he returns to calling them brothers. That is the term he has used to talk about the whole body throughout the whole letter. He's talking to the congregation now. He's told them already how they ought to deal with their leaders, and now he's telling them how they ought to fulfill what they have seen from their leaders, how they ought to put into practice what they have learned from faithful laborers in their midst. The people in the church also ought to be willing to admonish, even though it's not very easy. You too ought to be willing to give biblical counsel to people who need to be rescued from temptation and sin. Even if when you, when you are drawn to do that, you feel like, you know, they probably don't want to hear this anyway. They're not going to be predisposed to accept the admonition that I have to give them, and yet we're called to do that, not just pastors, not just elders, but brothers and sisters together in the church. Why? Because God has given you to one another. Because he's called you to pursue peace and your relationships together. So it's not just the elder's job. You should also be people who see encouragement as your Christian responsibility. You should be people who do not give up easily when you're trying to help some of those people in the church who need help, but they're not very good at taking help. Right? We're to persist in these things and not to become impatient when our help isn't received well or quickly. It means that everyone in the church should live like the church is worth investing in. That's how we wait together. We should live like peace in our relationships is a priority. We should live like people who are waiting for the Lord together. And so we should have peace in our relationships. That's our first priority. The second is a priority of joy. That the church that waits well for the Lord will be full of joy, specifically joy in our worship. Joyful worship is the theme of the rest of this paragraph in our ESV Bibles. Uh, You notice from verse 16 that command to rejoice always all the way to verse 22 to abstain from every form of evil. It seems like perhaps there's a lot going on there uh, and one point covering joyful worship doesn't really encompass all that's going on. But but pay attention uh, to what Paul is doing here. He's talking really about two things. He's talking about the way that we speak to God, and he's talking about the way that God speaks to us. 
He's giving us a conversation of, of what happens. He's telling us the back and forth that shows up when we gather together in corporate worship. Do you ever wonder why we begin all of our services with a reading from Scripture about why worship is important? God begins by speaking to us, and we respond by speaking to Him. We sing hymns, and we pray prayers, and we, we confess our, our faith together. And then God speaks to us again. And then we speak to him again. And there is this back and forth like a good conversation. And that's what worship is supposed to be about. Worship is not a spectator sport where we come and sit and wait for it to wash over us, right? Do you ever wonder why we sing songs in a way that we can hear one another? I don't want to go on a tangent here about contemporary worship. That's not the point. But the point is, we ought to be speaking. We ought to be encouraging joy in our worship. We ought to be speaking together to the Lord, and he comes and speaks to us as well. You know, just like it happens in our marriages, sometimes it happens in our worship, and we suffer a communication breakdown. And we do that anytime one side of the communication equation uh, is shut down. Either we refuse to hear what the Lord is saying to us, or we hold back on the things that we should be saying to him. Verses 16 to 18 deal with what we should be saying to the Lord. It comes to us in this, this rapid-fire series of commands. In fact, the Greek is even more direct. So what takes us ten words in the English to understand, Paul wrote in seven. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. It's pretty simple. It's almost too simple. That's what's difficult about this passage. It's the directness of these commands that makes them borderline dangerous in the wrong company in the church. These are the kinds of blanket commands that you need to be careful where you throw them around when you gather together with other believers and you recognize that other believers have, well, different hang-ups. We have disappointments. We have different heartaches that we carry around. So you tread lightly with these commands. The commands are true, of course. This is what God wants from us. This is what he calls us to. It's what he demands of us. And so Paul adds the exclamation point there of telling us that this is God's will for you. This is what he desires. This is what he demands. Just like in chapter 4 when we found that it's God's will for you, brothers and sisters, to be holy and to be sanctified and to be pure. So we find in chapter 5 that God's will for you, his demand of you, is that you be filled with joy and thanksgiving. Always, without ceasing, in all circumstances, full stop. That's a tall order, right? It's a tall order for anyone, even a Christian, who's going through unusually deep waters of suffering and loss. We need to recognize in the church that there are seasons of life when even those who know the gospel will feel as though the clouds have darkened and the light of God's mercy can no longer be seen. David spoke about that in the Psalms. He talked about it as a, uh, as a valley of the shadow of death. Jeremiah spoke about that. He told us in lamentation of a day when his eyes were spent with weeping. 
Even Paul, who wrote these words in 2 Corinthians, recalls a time when he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. And there may be a time, dear Christian, when you go through the same waters. And if you do, and perhaps when you do, what you need from your brothers and sisters in Christ is not uh, for them to whip out verses 16 to 18 like some band-aid, right? Get it together already. Why aren't you more joyful? Don't you know that God wants you to be thankful in all circumstances? What do you need from your brothers and sisters? What do you need to hear when you gather with the church for worship? You know, the thing about thankfulness is that it's not the kind of attitude that can be commanded. It's not the heart response that we can produce from the outside in. We try to do that. We try to do it with our kids on Christmas. And so you go to the in-laws and they're opening presents, and if they forget to say those magic words, you give them a nudge and you whisper, say thank you. Oh, oh, thank you. They say it, right? They mouth the words, but it's not the same thing as real thankfulness. Thankfulness doesn't come from the outside in. It, It can only bubble up from inside, like a, like a mineral spring on the side of a mountain. They come from somewhere deep down inside. Real rejoicing comes from within. And it means that when you see a brother or a sister in Christ going through the deep valley, for whatever reason, you need to tread lightly. It doesn't mean that you ignore the commands in these verses. It doesn't mean that you shy away from God's will for their thankfulness. Instead, you hold fast to those five little words at the end. That's what produces joy from the inside out. That's what meets us with something worth thanking God for beyond the shifting sands of our sin and our circumstances. Yes, it is God's will for you to rejoice and to be thankful and to pray without ceasing, but it is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Those five words, without them, verses 16 to 18, are all law. Do this, do this, do this. But with those words, these verses become gospel. With those words, these verses become joy in our hearts that we don't have to drum up by just trying a little bit harder to be just a little bit more joyful. And so to the Christian who's struggling, and we all sometimes struggle, and to the Christian who's doubting, and we all sometimes doubt, and to the Christian who wonders whether God can be trusted or rejoiced in, or even whether he's listening at all, God's will for you in Christ Jesus reminds us that the same God who commands your thankfulness is the God who gives us a gift that makes your eternal joy possible. He gave his sinless son into the agony of the garden. He offered his spotless lamb on the altar of your sin. He sacrificed the Lord of glory to set you free forever from the bondage of sin and death and all the muck and suffering that we face in this world. He gave his son for you, dear Christian. It was the will of God to crush him and to put him to grief. Why? Because it's the will of God that you should be full of joy and rejoicing. 
because it was the will of God in Christ Jesus to give you a salvation worth being thankful for, even if, honestly, some days you have trouble seeing the light of his mercy. What we need in the church as we wait are more people who are convinced of this, who can gently come alongside those who are not. So that those who believe can help those who doubt. So that together we can give thanks from the heart for grace that makes salvation worth rejoicing in. And that's precisely why we need the commands of verses 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit, Paul says. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. How exactly is it that a struggling, waiting church can grow in the conviction that what God has done in Christ Jesus is actually bigger and actually more joyful than the suffering this world throws at us? How do we become convinced of that? How do we grow in that? by listening to what he has to say to us. It's by receiving the life-giving word of the Holy Spirit. That's what these words are about. They're about letting God's word have its perfect way in us. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit through Scripture to broaden our horizons of God's grace through Jesus for his people. You know, at just this moment, we're going to pretend like there isn't a modern-day controversy in these verses. Just this precise time and just for the sake of getting through the text, we're going to ignore that big pink prophetic elephant in the room in these verses. Instead, we're simply going to acknowledge that what Paul is talking about is the authoritative declaration of God through the mouths of men. Prophecy, he says. The Holy Spirit speaking. Just like Isaiah and Malachi and Obadiah in the Old Testament. So at the time in the New Testament, before the finishing of the scriptures, while the foundation of the church was still being laid, Paul has in mind people like Agabus and Judas and Silas and the four daughters of Philip. Paul's talking about his own words. Paul's talking about Peter's words. He's talking about the letters of James and John and Jude. Paul is talking about the way the word of God came to the church while the New Testament was still being written. And the overall command that he gives to the church is, do not quench the spirit. The idea is something like smothering. It reminds you of every time in the Chronicles of Narnia that Edmund said something daft at just the wrong time and all of his siblings turned to him and said, Ooh, oh, do stop being such a wet blanket, right? Don't just squelch everything. Don't just smother it all. Do not quench the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying. Don't close your eyes and, and harden your heart and put out the fire that God himself is igniting in the lives of his people. Don't downplay the miraculous nature of what God does for his church. Don't deny the promises that God is making to his waiting children. Why? Because when you do that, you smother the joy of our worship together. God comes to us in his word and he tells us of things that we would never imagine, we would never dream up. Paul says, no mind has imagined, no eye has seen the things that God has in store for those who love him. And we squelch the spirit when we say, ah, but the stuff, the stuff I'm dealing with, it couldn't possibly amount to that. 
Paul tells us that this brief momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And we stifle the spirit when we say, are you sure? I know Paul's telling me that, but I'm not sure I can believe it. And it stifles the joy in the church when we quench the spirit of God. But that's what we need in our worship. That's what we need while we wait. Peace in our relationships and joy in our worship. Most of all, we need confidence. We need confidence in our God. This brings us to the climax of Paul's comfort for the church. It brings us to this benediction that we've seen several times already. We've, we've looked ahead, right? You, you get a book, none of you people would do it, but I used to have this, uh, this habit. When I read a book that I really liked, I would turn to the last page and I would read the last sentence. And we've been doing that as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians. We've been looking forward because we know where the story is going. We've seen it already, this benediction. We've turned here more than a few times, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We've seen that already. And Paul calls him the God of peace. The church is waiting. The church is on a knife's edge. The church is wondering what will come next. When will Christ return? Will it be today? Will it be another thousand years from now? What will we do until he comes back? And Paul talks about the God of peace. The God of wholeness. The God of safety. Actually, I bet that the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the peace of God is probably the reconciliation that we have with God the Father through God the Son by the grace of God the Holy Spirit. That's typically what we think of. Peace, like we talked about earlier, the lack of conflict between two parties. And this is often how Paul uses the term when he talks about the peace of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He tells us that since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's peace in terms of reconciliation. That's a broken relationship healed and restored through the sacrifice of the Savior. But here, in 1 Thessalonians, the idea seems to have more to do with wholeness. If Paul was writing to his Jewish brothers, he might have called him the God of Shalom the God of well-being, the God of perfect blessedness. And the clue, I think, comes in this language that he uses about God sanctifying his people, he says, completely. Then he pulls it out a little bit, a little bit further in the next line. Uh, here comes this prayer where he asks God to extend, uh, to keep their whole soul and spirit and body blameless at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He he will sanctify his people completely. He will keep their spirit and soul and body. And no matter how you cut apart those three different terms metaphysically, it's clear that Paul is telling us that God is a God who leaves no aspect of his people's existence unredeemed or unaccounted for. Not the visible or the invisible. Not the physical or the spiritual. The God of the gospel can be trusted to bring his people into perfect peace forever. Just like Paul talked about earlier, 
We're not waiting for some disembodied existence with the Lord. He said the Lord will return, and the dead in Christ will raise first, and then we together will be with him forever. There is a redemption of spirit and soul and body, physical and imphysical. Unphysical, spiritual, whatever you want, I don't know. Now the truth is the world has no shortage of religions or philosophies that promise some lesser form of peace in this life. You can find them everywhere you turn. There are self-help books that promise that you don't even need God for that sort of thing. Right, so you can read this book over here to learn how to control your boundaries and your relationships if that's what you need. And you can read that book over there if you need to learn how to be a bit more assertive in this other relationship. Or you can read this book over here that will tell you how to be a bit more accepting in this relationship. And you can get your whole life in order. You can set all of your relationships right with just the, the skills and the techniques that we can learn in the bookstore, they tell us. There are strategies and gurus of all stripes who promise to give you the tools that you need for success and tranquility. And again, there are the man-made religions that promise the same thing. They're the ones that go further and say, actually, you can have peace beyond this life. You can have peace in some further spiritual existence. You can be absorbed into the all-knowing universe, perhaps. You could have an opportunity to come back next time as a bird or a butterfly or a moonbeam. I don't know. You could do any sort of thing, and it's going to be different, but it's going to be peaceful, you know. The God of the Bible promises something different. He promises bodily resurrection, just like Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection. A resurrection of the self-same body that you have right now, except glorified, and purified and made ready for eternal dwellings. He promises real resurrection. He promises a real existence with thinking and feeling and knowing and rejoicing. He promises a life in heaven that has no end or no sorrow or no pain and no loss forever. In a word, he promises God's people shalom, wholeness, in the presence of Christ and God the Father Forever, so he says, may the God of peace, the one from whom all shalom comes, the one who has perfect peace in himself, the one who has reconciled you to himself in Jesus Christ, so that you have a promise of something better than becoming a moonbeam someday. May that God sanctify you completely. And the basis on which Paul prays for these things to be made true in the church is the power of God to preserve his people. In verse 23, the key word here is kept. Kept. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept, blameless, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not made blameless, by the way. Not made blameless for the coming of Jesus Christ, because through faith in him we already are blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, our salvation depends on us staying that way. After all, it's a long wait until then, perhaps. There's a lot of temptation between now and that day. There are innumerable opportunities for us to slip up and to do something that will bring us into blameworthiness, that will make us condemnable on that day. But Paul has 
far too much confidence to believe that that's possible. Not confidence in you, dear believer. Not confidence in the church. Confidence in the God of peace. So Paul doesn't pray that we would become blameless. He doesn't ask that we would attain blamelessness eventually, somehow, someday. He doesn't ask that we would navigate the waters of sin and temptation well enough that we come out as dry on the other side as when we came in. Paul prays that our whole spirit and soul and body would be kept blameless, preserved by the power of God until he returns in Christ Jesus. You know, in Presbyterian circles, we make much of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It is the teaching that if you have been united to Christ Jesus for salvation through faith, you can never fall away and be lost. Salvation is not something that comes and goes. It's not something you have and lose and maybe get again if you rededicate in the right way. It's a doctrine that proclaims our security forever in the saving work of God. It's that beautiful comfort that we like to hear at the end of Romans chapter 8. Right? That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depth, anything else in all creation, none of it can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We love it because it's true, because it gives us hope that the promise God made to us in Jesus Christ can never fail. But we need to remember that there is no perseverance of the saints without the preservation of the saints. And that's what Paul is praying for here. That the Lord would keep his people blameless, that he would shepherd them to himself in holiness, that the Lord God himself would not allow his purposes for salvation to come up short. And it's the doctrine that's taught just a few verses earlier in Romans 8. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You want proof that God is able to keep his people, Paul is saying. Look at what he's done to gain you already. He didn't come to the point of, well, it's going to cost me a little bit more than I want to give, so I'm going to hold back. No, no, he did not spare his son, but he gave him up for us. Won't he do everything else that's necessary to bring us to the end with him, to keep our spirit and soul and body blameless? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is keeping us, who can unkeep us? God keeps his people. He preserves them blameless in body and soul and spirit right to the very end. And while Paul waits for that day, he has confidence in God. Confidence that it's impossible for his grace to fail. And you, dear believer, can have that same confidence in him. If you know that the will of God for you in Christ Jesus is to pursue you with his Son, if you know that the Father loved you enough to pursue you out of your sin and your misery through Jesus Christ, that when it comes to his preserving power, you can say together with Paul, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's how the church waits. Peace in our relationships, that's an outflow. Joy in our worship, that's 
what's produced by the Holy Spirit. Confidence in the Lord that he is faithful, that he can do it. That's what keeps us waiting for the last day. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us, O oh Lord, to wait for you well. Give us confidence in all the promises that you have given. Give us confidence in your work in Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.